on this bonus edition of Hoopsology, welcome filmmaker and Emmy Award winner Zach Levitt. And I hear about Zach's creative process when he creates his documentaries. He also tells us about how he became a filmmaker and how he has taken his creative vision to the podcast world. Matt and I really enjoyed this chat, so check it out. All right, Zach, so I wanted to pick your brain because I want to seem like I said a fanboy of your work, but um, I, whenever your documentaries um, appear on ESPN, I'm the first to check them out. And I really wanted to interview you because I wanted to pick your brain of the creative process. So can you walk our listeners through when you get proposed a project? Um, what is kind of your framework and game plan uh, on how to execute it? Uh, just for instance, on the uh, 30 for 30 on the bad boy pistons. Yeah. So, I mean, I, th- I think any story that anybody is telling, um, and certainly this goes for me, uh, probably, um, more so than anything in my process is, is research, right? It all stems from knowing the story. Um, and it, and it may sound a little, uh, cliche or, or corny even, but you know, you, you kind of have to know the story better, um, in some cases than the people who lived it. Um, and, and, you know, in that regard, a lot of the stories that I've done, um, actually it's funny, most of the stories I've done, I guess, have been sort of throwback stories in a sense, right. Where they're several decades old. And so a lot of the time, um, and I'm skipping steps here, um, but I'll get back to the research in a second. A lot of times when you, when you sit down and you finally start executing these interviews, um, in the field, you know, you're actually sort of giving people the timeline and they're forgetting parts of the timeline and and you're feeding it back to them. You sort of need to know that, um, on the spot. You need to know that information on the spot. So, so really it comes down to research. And, and so obviously what does that mean? It, it means reading any book that's been written about them, um, as many articles as you can, um, and sort of ingesting all of that information. And as you're reading it, of course, you're looking for maybe some anecdotes or a quote that stands out. Um, and of course the characters that stood out, right? Any of that information forms ammunition, um, for you as the storyteller, when you're out in the field, you may be able to reference something when you're in an interview that somebody else said that elicits a, an emotional response. Um, all of that stuff has to basically take over your entire brain and, and, and it, and it can be all consuming, but, um, for me, at least for my process, I sort of have to push everything out of my mind and, um, you know, only leave room for, for, uh, what's pertinent to this particular story. And so, yeah, so it all starts with research. And can you just describe your, your fandom of basketball, like in terms of growing up, which teams did you follow? And I just want to follow up with that in terms of the, the world of basketball is so compelling on, on many surfaces. Which stories are compelling to you to just to make a film on? That, that hasn't been done? Um, just in general, like if you're proposed a project, like since there's just so many topics concerning just the NBA or just the basketball world at large, well, which is going to catch your attention first to perhaps make a film about it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good question. So, I mean, as, as far as my background, uh, just to answer the first part of the question, um, 
grew up a lot like, you know, a lot of kids loving basketball. I, I, I was actually uh, five foot three in 11th grade. Um, and then I shot up after that. So I, I didn't have any real shot of, of playing for, for any team. I wasn't a good enough ball handler or anything like that, but I love to play, um, played every day, probably for, I don't know how many years, um, X amount of surgeries later, I probably played too much, but I, I grew up in upstate New York in Woodstock, New York. Um, and I was a diehard Nick fan, huge Nick fan. Um, dreading those, you know, every time we would go up against the Bulls and MJ, but also a diehard MJ fan. I mean, how could you not be an MJ fan, right? Um, and so I, I went to college down in Florida. And after school, I went for a graduate degree in, in sports management. I, I should I should let you know and let the listeners know that um, I had no real um, thoughts on being a filmmaker at the time. I was actually uh, planning on going to medical school um, and then organic chemistry happened. (laughs) I decided better of that. And I I had always loved film and I loved basketball. Um, And while I was down in in graduate school in Miami, I actually got an internship for Eric Spolstra, um, who of course is the head coach of the Miami Heat who's still a good friend of mine. I was his, one of his first interns or maybe his first intern in the video room, um, taking stats for Pat Riley. It was his first year as a head coach for the heat. This was 96, um, taking stats on, on pencil and paper in, in the video room. Uh, and I was there for the impetus of the heat Knicks rivalry, right? I was actually on the floor as an intern. I was doing some, stupid stunt or something on the floor as an intern and and the fight between PJ Brown and Charlie Ward broke out. And I was right there trying to help break that fight up. And so here's this kid from, from New York, right. Who's a diehard Knicks fan. Who's now with the heat. And I'm like rooting for the heat. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, what's going on? Uh, You know, I, I sort of felt that Knicks allegiance waning a little bit. Um, And then I ended up working for the NBA for a while. Uh, and becoming a fan of, you know, the players who I would go out and produce features with, um, you know, players that I would develop a relationship with. So, so that's sort of my basketball path. Um, and, and, and the second part of the, the question, um, you know, what to me is the most interesting or what draws me to a story? I think this has always been true for me and, and it's really, and I know we'll, perhaps talk about this later on, what, what brought me into the podcast world. Um, but I, I've always been interested in stories with a real um, human interest pull. Um, and so, you know, there, there are great stories, you know, that are specifically basketball stories, but I, I always preferred to look for the human side of the story. You know, what's going to if my wife is watching it or my mother, what's going to make them relate to this story? You know, and whether that's doing a feature on LeBron James as a father um, or, you know, or doing a story about Dr. J or, you know, what, what is going to bring more people into the tent, so to speak, as viewers, you know, that's going to make them relate to it. And, and for me, that's always been, you know, the, the human side of things. What type of person is this, is this, is this player, Right. 
Um, and so that's, that's what's always drawn me, um, or I should say those are the, those are the stories that um, are the most compelling for me. Awesome. So Zach, is it, is it safe to say your, your favorite era of basketball is kind of like the late 80s through the 90s type of basketball? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, the golden era, of course, is, is MJ, um, Bird Magic, right? right. Um, when they were all in the league at the same time. And, and I think that that's, for, for me, that's, that's got to be the, 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 the top era. But, I mean, <laughs> I think any era that LeBron is in is also the golden era, right? I mean, you know, these types of players sort of define the era, right? And they define an entire generation, right? Mm. First it was MJ. I mean, at least in the last, what, almost 40 years, right? You know, the, 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 the continuum from 84 is, is sort of MJ, Kobe, LeBron, right? Um, As far as the, the preeminent superstar in the league and the guy that the younger players want to be like, right? And so I, I think, you know, those three eras are, are incredible eras right there with those three guys, right? Just look at what they were able to accomplish. Um, and that's why these, these conversations are always fun because I was actually just having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day. He asked me, LeBron or MJ? And of course, that's the, the question that everybody's asking right now. And <laughs> I, I, I told him I, my, my very short answer is I could make a really compelling argument for either guy, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so there, there you have it. And it's, it's hard to pick. I mean, but, but if I, if I were in a debate, I, I wouldn't have a problem arguing either side. And I, I think, you know, I don't think anybody would really. So it's, that's not really saying much, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, like you said, research. So I'm sure, I'm sure you've got cases built on either way that you can draw from. Definitely. In, in terms definitely. of something like that. Definitely. Awesome. So um, I, I wanted to ask you just on your thoughts after making the Bad Boys documentary, which which is fantastic. As I mean, your documentaries that I that I've watched. I mean, I, I'm a big fan Thank of you. all of them, much like Justin. Um, that that team to me still, even after the acclaim of that great documentary and everything, still does not seem like it gets maybe the the praise that it deserves considering what they did when they did it do you think that as time goes on is is that team going to get more and more love is isaiah going to get more recognition as as the superstar that he was for those two years i mean when you consider the competition that those teams beat how do you see that team progressing um, in the public eye or public opinion over like the next 10 to 20 years? <laughs> Much the same way it has over the last 20. I mean, yeah. honestly, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it, it, it sort of is, a sh- it, it is a shame in a sense that they don't get the recognition that they deserve because they beat, they, they did beat everybody. And, and MJ is, you know, he's the first one to say that there would be no MJ without the Pistons. Um, but look, everybody needs a villain. Everybody loves a villain, right? And, and so I think somebody in, in Bad Boys, I don't remember who it was, but there was a great soundbite 
um, that, you know, when, when the guys are, are beating the guys that you love, you know, you're, you're going to hate them. And that's what they were doing. They were beating the guys that the media and the public adored, right? And mm-hmm. Bird, Magic, and, and Jordan. Um, and they were ugly about it, right? <laughs> they, they didn't right. take any prisoners and they were physical and, you know, the game changed because of them, because of, you know, the physicality of, of what they were bringing out there and other teams starting to emulate that. And it wasn't a good look for the NBA. Um, and, and they changed the rules. Um, but at the same time, they were an incredible team. I mean, they were, I, I don't know how many hall of famers were on that team, maybe only a couple. Um, no, Rodman, Isaiah, Dumars, Dumars. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know if anybody else was, um, but anyway, I mean, they were an incredible team. Um, so you can't take anything away from them. Um, but people are always going to find excuses to, to talk smack about them. Um, and every time there's a Jordan story that comes around, um, there's gotta be somebody there to create some tension. And that person has always been Isaiah, you know? Um, and so there's the perception of him in that regard, as far as, you know, his relationship or lack thereof with Jordan. And so people are going to dislike him for that reason as well. But I will tell you that Isaiah, you know, I've spent a, a decent amount of time around him. I mean, I, I really happen to like the guy a lot. Um, he was always super cool uh, with me. Um, so I, I'm never going to say anything bad about Isaiah. You know, I really like the guy. Mm-hmm. And Zach, can you just follow up in terms of the perception of that team now that The Last Dance has come out? Um, just because that documentary focused a lot on the bad boy Pistons. And I think their perception was, um, I don't know, a lot of like new age fans, I felt took uh, kind of the lean on the Jordan side of things. Um, however, that team, just watching that documentary, they were such um, a, a photograph of, of that, that time period specifically and to stereotype them and just um, characterize them for just maybe one moment of time where they just walked off the court and didn't shake hands. I think it's fairly unfair to them. Um, do, do you think over time history will look more fondly on, on this team just because they were more of a physical type of team? They, they didn't care what fans had to say. They were really, in my mind, one of the first teams to um, – stand up for something to really have their own identity. And I think they laid the foundation for a team like, you know, with Jalen Rose and Chris Webber, the fab five, um, Definitely. they were kind of the, the, the platform for that. And you just don't really see that with, with teams now specifically. Um, can you just kind of take our listeners just through kind of that team back in the eighties where, you know, they weren't necessarily trying to make any kind of political statement. They were just being themselves. Yeah, they were being them. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, first and foremost, uh, just the first part of, of what you were saying about their portrayal in the last dance and everything. I, I, I think it's, it, it's the analog that comes to mind is, is when you discover a band that you like and you hear 
one album and you're like, wow, this band is really interesting. I, I love their music. Um, let me listen to more. And then all of a sudden you're doing a deep dive and you, you know, you're, you're, you're down the rabbit hole. And that's the cool thing about what the last dance did is it made people want to um, learn more about these other players and teams that helped elevate Michael and the Bulls to where they got. And, and it's funny because um, my nephew, uh, he's a LeBron guy all day. And I, for, for the last 10 years, I said to him, well, there's this other guy, MJ, he's the best ever. And he said, no, LeBron's the best ever. So the last dance came out and he's like, oh my God, uh, Jordan's the goat. And so the last dance introduced <laughs> some, a total new, int- a, a, a new generation to the Bulls, right? And then once that generation became, uh, started to become believers about MJ and the Bulls, then it's, okay, I want to learn more. And, and so now there's this new generation that's discovering teams like the bad boys. Um, but the second part of your, your question is, is, a, is a really interesting one about whether or not they knew what they were doing. And I, I, I definitely do um, think that they did uh, in a lot of respects. Um, you know, it, they realized that they needed to create an identity um, and an image that not only they could rally around, but the city of Detroit could. And, you know, I, it's, it's funny, I think, and maybe it's just a lazy narrative, but I think it's also true in a lot of ways when people say the team takes on an ident- the identity of the city. Mm. Um, and the Pistons did that, right? That sort of blue collar, bring your lunch pail to work, you know, be physical, um, do what you got to do to win. Um, but there was also, you know, what we didn't talk about in bad boys, um, was the, you know, was the, the, the racial component of it as well. Um, mm-hmm. and Isaiah has been really vocal about this. Um, you know, I think that those guys in much the same way that the fab five did represented what you spoke about, you know, they were, you know, they were representing Detroit. Um, they were predominantly black team. And I think, you know, I I think that the media across the country was, became uncomfortable with, um, the way that they presented themselves. But I think that, you know, the bad boys, they were about winning and that had nothing to do with, with, with race. No, I understand what you're saying, Zach, um, just because just watching the Bad Boys documentary and then the Fab Five, too, just how, you know, as myself being an African-American, just especially during that that time period in particular, just the way, just their fashion, just like their whole um, kind of me against the world attitude. And in that time, too, I remember that, you know, you had a lot more sellable stars in the NBA, Michael Jordan, uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, really the, the, the bad boy Pistons did not fit in that archetype. Um, so how they acted was totally emblematic of maybe the, the rise of hip hop. Um, and you just saw through your documentary, the scene through even the way it was built, um, very much took up that eighties kind of public enemy um, type of vibe to it, uh, which I thought yeah. was really, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think a lot of white America was uncomfortable with that, you know, and, and so you had this mixture of, um, you know, the way they played this, this physical in your face style. And also, as you, as, as you mentioned, you know, you had the starter jackets and Chuck D wearing the, the Pistons starter jacket and the Pistons hat. And, you know, this was at a time where hip hop was exploding in that way. And, activism was becoming more prominent. Um, you know, I, I think it made people uncomfortable. And I think all of those things rolled into this sort of, you know, us against the world mentality. And, and, and I don't think there's ever been a team that has embodied that us against the world mentality as much as the Pistons in, in, those, in those years. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, back to what you were saying, Zach, and, and I agree, especially through the 80s and 90s about teams taking on the identities of their cities. I just kind of quickly wanted your thoughts on, do you see that as still the case in, in modern day NBA? Or do you see that um, that maybe we're like pulling away from that a little bit where, you know, players are, are kind of more their own market brands, does that affect that city identity? How do you see that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's obviously much harder with, with free agency and, and superstars moving around as much as they do. Um, mm. I, don't, I don't necessarily see teams um, taking on the identity of their cities as much as taking the identity of that particular team. So you look, you look at the Miami heat, right? I talked about the heat before and their identity has remained the same for all of these years, right? They're a very insular team, um, defense focused. Uh, they're going to put in the work, um, next man up mentality, all that kind of thing. Um, and the foxhole mentality. And, and that doesn't matter if, you know, you, you have LeBron, D. Wade, and, and Chris Bosh, or you have, you know, Jimmy Butler, Goran Dragic, and Bam Adebayo, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the same mentality. And, and I don't think that that represents the city um, as much as maybe the leadership, right? So in that mm -hmm. regard, um, I, think, I think that's the case. I mean, L.A. is going to be L.A., right? Um, but New York, I mean, what's, what's, what, what's the Knicks identity? I, I don't even know what you know, good, good, strong teams have, have identities, right? That players come in and they fit into that identity and they, and they, and they search for players who are going to fit into that identity. Um, so I don't, I don't see it so much anymore as, you know, feeding into the identity of the city because there, there's so much, you know, um, it, it's so transient, with the players now, uh, unlike in the eighties, you know, you had these guys staying on one team for their whole careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so maybe in a way, just kind of knowing your identity is, is a strength in, in today's NBA and, you know, in maybe speaking broader in 2020 in general, like kind of knowing your strengths and playing to them is, is a big advantage. Like for the heat, like everyone talks about heat culture, like you say, um, yeah, I think I think Matt, did we lose you? Um, Zach, can you still hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, oh, sorry, like man, I was turning it over to you. 
Oh, okay. Um, I, I wanted to ask Zach and transition to your your podcast work um, in particular. Um, and I'm I'm a huge fan of just you know making podcasts and just listening to them. Can you kind of walk us through what was the mindset of getting into kind of the the podcast um, medium and what is your creative process compared to filmmaking? Yeah. So. Um... So going back to one of my earlier comments about looking for the human side of the story in these basketball films um, that I've done, that, that's what drew me to the podcast world was the uh, opportunity to tell non-sports stories. Um, as much as I love sports stories and love the inherent drama in sports, I definitely uh, wanted to, to get away from it for a while and, and do some really interesting uh, stories that you wouldn't have thought somebody that made a bunch of basketball films would, would be, would be doing. But so that coupled with um, the sheer audience size that can be generated for these podcasts, uh, I, I, I never realized that, they were, that there were that many podcast listeners out there uh, until I became one. Um, so that's what really drew me to um, to the podcast world, um, and, and actually the first one I did sort of freelancing was was a story about Big Poppy um, from the Red Sox, and then and then I got hired to to start this originals division for Cadence Thirteen called C Thirteen Originals, um, and I did one called uh, Root of Evil last year, uh, which was. <laughs> as far away from sports as you can, you can imagine uh, about a, the family of, of the prime suspect of the Black Dahlia murder. Um, and that was a, as, intense of a, as, in, as intense and dark of a story that you can possibly imagine. Um, but, the, but the process is exactly the same. Um, it, it starts with research, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that the biggest difference um, with the films that I've done and the podcasts is that, you know, for the podcast, I'm on the phone trying to track down who these people are and if they'll talk. And so I'm making a million calls, um, not knowing who's got what to say. Uh, for example, the one that I have out right now, uh, called relative unknown, which is a crazy story about a woman uh, named Jackie Taylor who grew up in the witness protection program and her father was a hell's angel snitch from the, from the early 1980s in Cleveland. It's a, another dark, intense story. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, I read a, I read an article from 1971 about a, about a biker brawl in Cleveland where uh, Jackie's father stabbed somebody to death. Um, and, uh, there was a quote from a police officer in the article and we, we searched for all of the contact information for everybody with his name in the Cleveland area. And I finally got him on the phone and he remembered it vividly, told me about all the blood on the floor and everybody stabbing each other and everything and went out to Cleveland for a bunch of interviews and ended up interviewing him. And that's, that's like the super rewarding part of the process is when you finally make connections like that, you know, and you, and you get a guy like that on the phone, who's not only willing to tell the story, but who remembers it in in such vivid detail. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, the beats of putting the story together 
it's really the same, except, you know, when you're in the field, you don't have to have a, you know, large camera crew and lighting for the interviews mm-hmm. and all that. You just show up with, with somebody to set up a microphone and you go, which is really nice. Um, so. Do you find it easier than, than directing films, you think? Is it more of a streamlined process where um, it can extract more of that creative um, kind of juices you have in, in your mind compared to maybe um, a lot more work on the filmmaking side? Or do you think podcasting has its own challenges since it's an audio medium? You know, I thought it was going to be easier. <laughs> and it, and it, could be, it could be because of the stories that I've, that I've told, which are, are super, super complicated, multi-layered, um, you know, you know, kind of tough stories to, to, to get through, to figure out how to tell them. Um, but it's, but it's more difficult because you don't have the visuals to rely on. Right. So you're, so you're removing one sense from the audience's arsenal, right. To, to, to consume the content. Right. So you, you have, to me, the challenge is, you know, it's sort of like the new book, right? A, a, a great book, you can totally picture yourself in the scene, in what's going on. And so that's how I approach uh, the stories that I tell in the podcast world is when, when somebody is listening to it, I want them to picture the movie. Um, and, and with Relative Unknown, it's, it's been really cool reading some of the reviews, like this has to be a movie, I can see this movie happening. Um, so that's been fun. So that, that's the approach is, is to make it an immer- as immersive of an experience as possible rather than just, you know, you're sort of passively listening to it. I don't, I don't think the stories that, that we've done can be passively listened to. You, you, you have to be engaged with the story because um, there's so much detail and there's so much going on and there's a lot of characters. So I think it's more difficult in that way. Um, you know, when somebody's speaking, uh, in a film, you just throw up a Chiron that says Isaiah Thomas, Pistons Guard, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Julius Irving or whatever. In, in a sure. podcast, you have to figure out artful ways of, you know, reminding the audience of information that they've heard or of who this person is that's speaking and why they're pertinent to the story. And so I think the writing is a lot different and more difficult. Mm. And... I find listening to your podcast, in, in particular uh, Gangster Capitalism, um, when listening to it, 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 it almost forms a picture in my mind um, when when the story is being told to me. And I find it interesting because I listen to also some audio books as well, and I don't get drawn in as well. And just seeing you know, this explosion of podcasts within, um, I would say, the last decade, especially in the storytelling um, genre of podcasting, where do you see the future of the medium being? Um, because there's a lot of great content. Um, it's a lot of it's available for free. Um, do you see that being the case still, or do you see it going more towards a paid um, form in terms of content? Where do you see the, the, the genre going? Just considering with a podcast, anybody can do it, anybody can edit it. It's so easy to get into and, and form your own content. Um, where do you see the, the, the genre going? You think? Yeah, I mean, I think the audience is going to decide that, uh, you know, people sort of want both things, right? I know I do. I want to be able to 
watch or listen to things for free and not have to slog through um, commercials if I don't have to. But that's that's why things are free, right? That's 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 what pays mm-hmm. the bills for everybody. That's why we can all listen to these things for free, um, which is amazing. And I think that you know the audience ultimately will decide. I think I think there are some platforms that are that are trying the the pay model. Um, but ultimately the content has to drive everything. You know, if the content is good enough, I think, you know, those decision decisions about how it's presented, um, you know, will, will bring people to, um, whatever medium it is that they're, that they're being, whatever platform it is that they're being put on. If the content is good enough, you're going to go find it. Um, so I think that's, that's the million dollar question is is you know is is it going to continue in this model or or move to some pay model i don't think anybody knows yet i think you know everybody's focused so focused on building an audience and building these um you know these brands and these stories uh that that people want to come back and and continue to listen to um so yeah i mean i wish i had the answer to that uh but i but i know that the, as far as the content it continues to evolve, you know, and, and as far as C13, we just, uh, we, we just started a, a new group called C13 features, which is basically going to be, um, scripted films for audio, uh, you know, with, with A-list actors and everything. So that's, that's like an exciting new, um, you know, new area for podcasting. So it, 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 it literally, evolves so quickly. And that's what I love about this business is that as much as it, as quickly as it evolves and as fast as it's grown, there's still so much white space. There's still so much um, creative room to to grow. And and that's another huge reason why I came into this field. Yeah, it really does sound like with some of the things you've described there and, and some of the stories that you mentioned that your podcasts are based around it, it really seems like you could have a, a really awesome streamlined process where you get this great podcast where you're doing all this research, you're getting all these great interviews. And, you know, if, if there's great interest in that podcast, as we hope, of course, then you have something set up to take that to the film. If people are, are interested in looking at that. Definitely. That's, that's the goal. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I think that's that's pretty brilliant. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, kind of going back to the human element. And, and you talked about, you know, when you were directing sports films, you wanted to find the human element and all of that. Do you find it any any more or less challenging or equally challenging? I know, I know you mentioned the process being very similar from the podcasting and the directing. Um, do you find it any any more difficult diving into like the darker nature of, of the human element? Like it sounds like many of your podcasts do. In, in the sports films, you mean? I, I'm sorry, in the in the podcasts, like in, in some of the crime oh, stories you're watching. No. And... no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to, um sort of the, the, the dark spaces of, of, I, I, I'm not drawn necessarily to true crime. Um, but I'm drawn to like human psychology. Sure. Um, and, 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 uh, 
you know, so, so for example, Root of Evil, um, I'll give you a couple examples. Root of Evil is, is, you know, it's about the most famous unsolved murder in American history, right? And, it, and like I said, it, it is dark beyond, um, I mean, I didn't sleep for a long time because the story mm. just wormed its way into my brain. Um, and, I, you know, I, I to, I, ultimately it was a story about a family, Right. And, and, you know, this search for, for lack of a better word, redemption, finding the, finding the light um, mm. at the end of the tunnel, out of the darkness. Um, and that's what the story was about. And I think, you know, the seventh, certainly the eighth episode, people started to realize that the story was, was not just about this murder and solving this murder. It was about this family and relative unknown has many similarities in that sense. You know, Jackie has lived a hell of a life, really difficult, dark life. And certainly her father did much worse um, as far as the darkness. Um, But, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel without giving anything away. Mm. And I'm drawn to stories like that. So I don't find that difficult. I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at the film The Doctor that I did about Dr. J, you know, I was having a conversation with him, and he he was telling me about all the death in his life. You know, his mom, his son, his his brother when he was 19, um, aunts, uncles. I was like, wow, this this is crazy. Nobody really knows this, and so that became a huge part of the film. Um, and I think it was probably something that people weren't expecting in that, in that film, you know, and there was just something about, it was just, you know, how you overcome things is, is interesting to me. Um, Absolutely. And I'm sure to a lot of people, right. How do you, how do you deal with resilience? And there's no, there's no manual. Everybody deals with things differently. And to me, there's, you know, I'm interested in how people deal with trauma and how they get through it. Um, and I, so I think there's a lot, there's a through line in a lot of the stories that I've done with that, you know, and I'm drawn to those types of stories and, and the darkness that surrounds them is sort of the vehicle to tell this bigger story to me, which is about, you know, to use a cliche again, the, the, the triumph of the human spirit, right. And another corny cliche, but, but there's truth to that. And, and I, and, you know, I'm, I, I love stories like that. You know, I love, I love people overcoming obstacles and that's, yeah, that's why sports stories are so great to tell as well. You know, there's always an obstacle in a sports story. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally true. Say it, it sounds like you've gone from, you know, sports, which is maybe more kind of surface level adversity where yes, it is people overcoming things. I, I think that's why we all are, are drawn to watching that, that struggle play out. And now you've gone into a much, much deeper, darker, as you've mentioned, element of that. Um, but, you know, we, we've all certainly been able to relate. I mean, maybe not to some horrific cases, but um, but I, I do agree with you that I think it's fascinating to watch the human spirit triumph like that. Definitely. Even in these, these super dark situations. Yeah, may- <laughs> exactly. Maybe that's why I'm particularly drawn to them right now. You know, for sure. Ho- hopefully, uh, hopefully, there's going to be some light 
soon. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And and to your point, Zach, I, I just want to ask you just because of a lot of the success of not only the Last Dance but the the O.J. Simpson um, documentary, your documentaries, um, just the podcast series that um, you're currently producing and working on. Do you right now? in terms of a storytelling telling medium, um, at least in terms of a Hollywood perspective, or even even TV shows that we watch, um, we've seen a huge explosion more in um, scripted shows. But I think lately through multiple streaming platforms, we've seen a transition towards docu-series. And I guess my question to you, do you see that perhaps being the mainstream, considering that with you know the pandemic that we're in, um, in terms of making a big budget um, kind of Hollywood film or television show, um, that's going to be more difficult to create. I'm wondering, do you think with just these documentaries and just, um, like you said, telling these stories of human adversity, this will actually become the norm um, in the entertainment that people watch? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think we all love great stories. And, and no matter how they're told, if it's a great, you know, a great story is a great story. If it's art, it's art, right? I mean, whether I'm watching, um, you know, a scripted film uh, that is moving or a documentary, I mean, it's, you know, if you're moved, you're moved. Um, and so I think that there's room, there's obviously room for both. Um, and, and certainly people want to see, um celebrities and stars on film and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the documentaries, uh, it's, it's for obvious reasons. I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, they've become so prominent in the last several years. And, and certainly um, the, the OJ doc was, was instrumental in, in helping to, you know, help people see the, 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 the value in multi-episodic, arc right for one story in a in a doc format um and and the truth is always stranger than fiction right and and i think i think a crazy true story like a relative unknown or a root of evil or or as you mentioned even gangster capitalism i mean people are shaking their heads as they're hearing this because they can't believe that it's true um you know there, there's there's always going to be interest in in these incredibly wild true stories um but yeah i don't see one necessarily becoming more popular than the other but i, I mean this year yeah i mean like what, what did we we had tiger king which was huge um i mean that's the that's the first one that comes to mind obviously the last dance was big um and there were a couple others uh but but you know i think with regard to the pandemic the people making these things are so smart and so creative. They're going to find a way to get them produced um, regardless of what obstacles in their way. Um, so, but yeah, it is. I mean, some of the stuff that's out right now is, is pretty amazing. Well, Zach, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Please um, plug where you're at on social media, um, the projects you're working on and what our listeners should look out for um, at the end of this year and in 2021 as well. Yeah, no, thank you for, for that opportunity. Uh, definitely check out the podcasts Relative Unknown, um, Once Upon a Time in the Valley, 
uh, gangster capitalism, root of evil, uh, anything from C13 originals and C13 in general. Um, and yeah, thank you so much to your listeners. Thank you so much to you guys for your time and uh, much appreciated for you having me on. Absolutely, Zach. Um, we really enjoyed this chat. It's something I've been looking forward to um, this entire week. So thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. So cool. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Zach. Pleasure having you on. Take care. Okay. Bye, guys.